when I'm the patient, there's a power dynamic. And again, even with all of my privilege, when I ask not to be weighed, my heart pounds. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome back to The Seasoned RD, or welcome to The Seasoned RD if this is the first time joining us. We are in the midst of our medical series and continuing today with Dr. Katja Rowell, family medical doctor, and Anna Lutz, pediatric registered dietitian and certified eating disorders specialist and supervisor. And I came across them through their letter, Dear Doctor, don't talk to my child about weight and the tips on how we can move from a weight-centric world where everything seems to be revolving around a person's weight or weight change or weight gain to a weight-inclusive world. And the tips for Thanksgiving, follow my lead in a weight-centric world, how to prepare your family for holiday gatherings if you anticipate comments about food, or the way someone's eating, what's happened with someone's weight, especially thinking about the pandemic and how doctors talk about weight gain, but they're not really talking about massive increases in eating disorders and the lack of hospital access. Lots of resources for you here between Alan Satter, Virginia Soul Smith, Reagan Chastain, but more importantly for me, Anna Lutz's blog, and that's all in the show notes, Sunny Side Up, and Dr. Rowell's Training for Professionals for Extreme Picky Eating, and the comment from both of them about trauma-informed care trainings, bottom-up nervous system, how trauma resides in the body. This is for all of us, therapists, dietitians, and medical doctors. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to both Anna Lutz and Dr. Katja Rowell. And welcome. And uh, you are both here as part of an invitation towards my medical series. And it's so important that all professionals who work with folks who are work, have either eating disorders or disordered eating or potential for, so we're talking preventative, a lot, both of you do a lot with prevention and treatment, but kids are so important. So the invitation was around a letter that the two of you got to. But before we get to that, I want to get to know both of you a little bit, and I want our listeners to get to know you. So Anna, mountains or beach? Oh, that's a tough one because I live in the very center of North Carolina in Raleigh, and it's three hours to the beach and three hours to the mountains. Mm. But if I had to choose one, I would choose the mountains because that's where I went mostly as a child to visit my grandparents. Your grandparents Um, in the mountains. Okay. Dr. Rowell? Easy for me, mountains. And um, we just relocated to the Pacific Northwest about four years ago because of the incredible 
mountains and the wildflowers. And so we're very lucky to have access to that. Where were you before? Before that, I lived in St. Paul, Minnesota for about 10 years. And I've lived in Wisconsin and Maine and Michigan and kind of lots of places, but we've landed here and um, feel pretty, pretty happy that this is where we are. Awesome. Okay. So just to tee it up for everyone, I've got the bookends. We have Anna, you are in the Carolinas. That's right. North Carolina, Raleigh. Carolina. And then I'm in Kansas City and Dr. Roel is on the West Coast. Okay. So I just came back from a beautiful trip from the West, mountains, mountains, mountains for me. And here I am in Kansas City where it's very flat. And I think I just want to go back <laughs> to the mountains. You, you have barbecue though, right? We you have really that. good barbecue. <laughs> that is for sure. Thank you. Okay. Anna, breakfast or dinner? Oh, goodness gracious. I'm going to have to go with dinner because I'm not a morning person. I love breakfast food, but I'm someone who kind of has to ease into the day and take it slow. And so um, um, I can taste my food a little bit more at dinner time. You're more ready for it at dinner (laughs) time. How about you, Dr. Rowell? Uh, can I say brunch? Is that fair? Yeah. You say whatever you want to say. I just, brunch seems to be that meal where you get to have your savory and sweet and usually you're lingering over a couple of cups of coffee. So that's, that would be my choice. Mm, awesome. And then the last is audiobook or paper book. Hannah. I would go with a paper book. Mm. I'm kind of a tactile person who, if I'm going to kind of dive into a book, I'd want to hold it, hold it in my hand and maybe be sitting, let's say in the mountains uh, with a cup of coffee. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, this is Katya. I don't want to be contrarian, but I have to say Kindle because, you know, e-reader because I mostly read. I have funny sleep cycles and the way I've made it work is I read most of it's in the middle of the night. So I have my little you know, backlit e-reader that I can still cuddle and have it on in bed and not wake up anybody. And so I, again, I'm going to pick option C, which is (laughs) annoying. You're just a rebel. That's all I'm getting the, I'm getting it. No. And actually that's, there is that middle ground. There's that Kindle, you know, it's a not reading to you, but it is not tactile paper Mm -hmm. where you can hide, well, you can still highlight in a Kindle. All right. So how did each of you get into the field of of nutrition, of medicine, and then into this field of working with food and eating? So this is Katya. I got into medicine before I knew any better. I was 17 when I got accepted into a medical undergrad program, and I've always liked people. I, I think I, I like to be a helper and I loved biology and I loved kids and it just felt like this, this perfect fit. I went into family medicine and I was doing a fair amount of work with children and, and young families and hate to admit it since this is the medical session, but I got pretty much zero training in eating disorders and I'm 47 now. So the ones above me, certainly in terms of age, probably got a lot less than I did. Almost no training in eating disorders, had a half hour on breastfeeding, uh, had one session on nutrition, which was about 
you know, which fat-free craft soup to take and low sodium this, and it was all fat-free salt, salt, ah. yeah. At a, you know, and this was university of Michigan. So this was, this was a top education. <laughs> so, so I didn't know what I didn't know. And I'm sure that I did um, some harm, which is really hard to admit. And so I was giving feeding advice, lots of parents coming in with picky eaters, kids with weight dysregulation. And now that I look back, I know how much I didn't know. And so I found myself into this feeding work as uh, because I became a parent of a quote, O word. Um, I don't know how you handle the O yeah. word here. Nope, but, I got um, it. A huge, uh, deliciously, you know, round baby who had a wonderful appetite and it scared me and I didn't know how to deal with it. And I had, you know, this was just the beginning of the panic around childhood weight 16 or so years ago. And I'd also worked with some eating disorders in college health setting and I didn't know what I was doing. So I stumbled on Ellen Satter's work after I found myself with a large toddler whose weight was accelerating rapidly and who more concerningly was food preoccupied. So I ended up just reading the book Child of Mine and instituting the division of responsibility. And within a couple of weeks, it was a huge transformation. And it was just this it was an aha moment, this, that I don't, I don't have to control this. And in fact, I can't. And the more I try to control what, how much she eats and how much she weighs, the worse things get. So I uh, dove into the research. I was part of Alan Satter's clinical faculty for a couple of years and decided that was what I wanted to do. That, that, that to me was preventive medicine. If we can help children to grow up, to stay in touch with those internal regulators and to feel good about food in their bodies. That to me felt like pretty powerful medicine. So that's what I've been doing and saw a lot of uh, folks in the adoption and foster world. So I, I have a special interest there, which has taught me a ton about trauma and felt safety and all kinds of wonderful things. And mm. And also extreme picky eating is sort of the other or selective anxious avoidant eating the other area I've focused on. So yeah. And with that, I will turn it over to Anna. Thank you so much. Wow. I've taken lots of notes. So there's questions coming. <laughs> well, I became interested in nutrition as an undergraduate. I went to Duke University and I think I kind of looked around and, and noticed for the first time how different differently people ate. And, and, you know, as many people know, Duke is a pretty high intense place, high intensity place. And there was a lot of people with eating disorders, a lot of dieting. And honestly, that was new to me. You know, I'm certain I knew people in high school who had eating disorders, but I didn't, didn't know that. And so I became interested in why people eat the way they do, what influences people's eating choices. And I studied psychology in my undergraduate. And then, you know, had a decision to make after that, did, because I had this focus of eating disorders, did I want to study psychology in graduate school or nutrition? And I, as a kind of a person who loves science and math, decided to study nutrition. So I really went into nutrition, wanting to work with people with eating disorders, which I think is pretty rare. It is. Yeah. I feel like the dietitians I talked to, it's more, they didn't want to work with people with eating disorders and yeah. then they kind of fall into it. But I, my first job was at Children's National Medical Center in DC. And one day a week, I, I worked in the eating disorder clinic. And the other four days I worked, and this was all outpatient, I worked in the general peds clinic 
And so I was seeing kids referred for picky eating, referred for weight concerns. And luckily, my supervisor, before I even started, handed me child of mine, Ellen Satter's book. And so I was, I'm grateful for that because I started learning about the division of responsibility, but there was still this kind of dichotomy for me where one day a week I was talking about all foods fit, you know, there are no good food, bad foods. And then four days a week, there was this focus on weight concerns. And so that's when I started really diving in more to Ellen Satter's work into intuitive eating into health at every size principles. And so, you know, I really see my work both, you know, primarily I work with individuals with eating disorders, but kind of overarching approach on my work from a weight inclusive lens, because, you know, I, I feel like that's the only way it makes sense from looking at the evidence, but also not causing harm. Yeah. And you're right. Most dietitians that I've talked to kind of stumble across eating disorders as part of their work and realizing that they have kind of come around. And and, uh, Dr. Rowell, when you said that you, I hate to admit it, but I didn't, I got zero training in eating. This is what this podcast is about. It's like, seriously, there is a lack of training and understanding. And you use the word O, the O word. And some people listening to this are probably saying, what are they talking about? So, you know, using the term and obesity in overweight can be stigmatizing. So this is a way this podcast is a way to start to introduce some of these things that we missed in our undergrad and our train. Both of you referenced Ellen Satter, big fan of her. I do think that her principles are taught more in undergrad programs maybe now. I'm not sure. I don't know how I came across I it years ago. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it is interesting when you see her principles, the division of responsibility or responsive feeding is now a term and, and some ideas that are gaining traction in terms of that language of, of responsiveness. One thing that can be really confusing and problematic is that the pediatric world or the general world sort of says, oh, this is great. Trust your child's appetite. Don't force them to eat. And it's all through a lens of preventing I'll just say it, preventing obesity, you know, know know that I'm doing air quotes whenever Mm. I say that. And so it's very confusing for parents to read, well, let your baby decide how much to eat, never force them to eat. And, and here's an appropriate portion size and don't let them eat too much. And so that it's sort of like, well, can I, I can trust them to eat if they stop when I think it's okay, but what if, can I trust them if they're in a bigger body? Can I trust them if they want a third helping or two pieces of bread or ice cream or whatever it is. So, so again, this is what Anna was saying with harm reduction or avoiding doing harm is, you know, this weight neutral focus. If we're feeding from a place or giving, whether it's division of responsibility, and, and I'm not saying that Ellen Satter says this, I'm saying that, or her group, that when pediatricians or public health people get a hold of these you know, division of responsibility or responsive principles, there's usually a a twist there, but only if the child is quote, normal weight, or only if it's fruit and vegetables. And by the way, sugar is poison and da, da, da. Mm. So, so parents are very confused by a lot of this messaging out there. 
So both of you had mentioned do no harm, right? And that when we're raised up in in the medical field and the nutrition field is that we're taught different ways and we're taught to be weight centric and look at things through the lens of, of weight. And what got me interested in both of your work was the letter to the pediatrician. Can you tell me about that? First of all, how did you two meet and get together to put this letter together? Well, I think we were, I think we were first introduced by a mutual friend, Catherine Zavodny, who's also a dietitian who works in the same space that we're, we're discussing. So Katya and I had interacted in different ways. I had attended some supervision groups that she, she had done. And we had, you know, I'd have to really think back of the, the different ways that we've interacted Katya. But I, th- I think it was first year, was it first year idea to write the letter to the pediatrician? I think it was. It, you know, it's, I still feel like we have to have seven or eight more letters to them. But I, I think I said, you know, I wanted, I want to do this, but I need help and, and who let's do this together. And also I think that the more people with different letters behind their names. So I want to have, you know, an MD and an RD, you know, amplifying this message. So yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Anna. Uh, And so, you know, I just thought it was a great idea. I'm working with parents all the time who either feel super confused because they go to the pediatrician, pediatrician tells them that there's something wrong with their child's weight. And then one, they don't know what to do, but two, then they come see a dietitian like myself and we're giving them a different message. We're evaluating the growth curve. There may not, from my perspective, there may not be quote, a problem. This child may, let's say, always was growing on the 90th percentile. And so there's this confusion there. Or I work with children or adolescents with eating disorders who were told by a pediatrician that there was something wrong with their body. And this was a contributing factor to their eating disorder. And so there's this confusion. And so I'd love this idea of a letter because growth charts are confusing. Growth is confusing. And when doctors or medical providers talk about these numbers in front of children in alarming ways, you know, we see as providers, all three of us, the ripple effect and the harm that can be done, whether creating fear and shame and confusion with the child or with the parent. So tell us a little bit about the letter, the content, what what you wanted to get across and how you set it up for a parent to use it. So the idea of the letter is something that a parent can print off and just hand to the medical provider. They can personalize it if they need to. When we first posted it, we posted it in a blog post on Sunnyside Up Nutrition and and even added kind of excerpts that if the parents want to copy and paste certain excerpts into it that personalized it. But Mm -hmm. the idea is it says, you know, I know my child is in the quote overweight or obese category, and I'm asking you not to talk about weight in front of my child. And it goes on to talk about the risks that having these weight focused conversations can have and the research of moving away from a focus on weight into a more responsive feeding approach. And and it cites the research at the bottom. So if the physician medical provider wants more information. Those citations are at the bottom. Yeah. And I think you know, we tried to make it short because doctors, uh, you know, they're the health 
system is just so overworked. I know my colleagues, I mean, I have a lot of empathy for my colleagues who might have seven or eight minutes or 15, or they're often running behind. So the pressure for the primary care providers is really huge. So I have a lot of empathy for them. They don't want to be harming kids. They don't want to have these discussions. And that's one thing when I train or I reach out and do training with pediatricians or family doctors is to say, how does any of this feel to you? These discussions are horrible. I remember them feeling awful to have, you know, when I was practicing in a weight centric model, it doesn't feel good. It feels very shaming and blaming. It feels awful as a provider. It feels awful as a parent. It feels awful for the child and it doesn't work and it causes harm. And so, so I just wanted for a minute to, you know, hold a little bit of empathy for, for providers who go into it for, for a lot of times, really good reasons, you know, no, no pediatrician or family doctor is, you know, sitting on, on their 500 foot yachts. So anyway, but um, so we tried to make it really short and concise. We could have put 200 resources or, or studies on there, but one of the most important one is, you know, even the Academy of Pediatrics, and I think it was 2016, yeah. basically came out and said, do not talk about weight in front of children. You can talk about, you know, behaviors. You can talk, are you eating breakfast? Do you, do you have time to get breakfast? Do you have enough food? Food insecurity is a huge, I don't think we have that in the note, Anna. But that doesn't actually need to go on the note. But doctors, now we need another note. I'm getting Be an excerpt. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah. you know, pediatricians should be asking about access to food. That's a that's an absolute horrible problem associated with weight dysregulation and eating disorders. And and so, you know, we really wanted to to make it consistent and say, hey, these are the 2016 pediatric guidelines. Don't ask about weight. Don't talk about weight to end and really focus on healthful behaviors and not those numbers. So what do you do for, this is beautiful, don't talk about weight in front of children. And then what do you do for the kids who worry that they they do have a weight, something going on with their weight? They've been told it before. Yeah. I just wanted to pop in and say one more thing really quick that, that I wanted to mention. Not everybody... Uh, for not every parent will it feel safe to give a note to a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of interviewing around foster parents, and that may not be a safe thing to do if you Mm -hmm. say if you're a foster parent or you're someone who's marginalized or if you yourself are in a bigger body, those discussions can be much more difficult. So we even put that in the letter, just sort of acknowledging, you know, when it's safe. and, Mm -hmm. And so there are those, I just want to acknowledge that it's not something every parent can do. And that really stinks. Mm, thank you for bringing that in. That's, and you talked earlier about the felt sense of safety and that's so important. We can't write it in a letter. <laughs> we, we have, we have to understand it truly as a felt sense. And if there's a whole trauma history or, and we're talking about weight, eating disorders, disordered eating prevention, some of that is already there. So with it for the doctor, if you were on the receiving end and you weren't, were raised up in this weight-centric world. You know, honestly, 20 years ago or me, 16 years ago, had someone handed me that, I probably would have rolled my eyes. And I, you know, I hate to say it, grumbled to my medical assistant or my nurse. And, but then I would have done it. I would, you know, I would have not talked about it in front of the child and, and maybe 
had I been in practice a few more years, I was only in practice for, you know, five, six years before I switched into this feeding work, but maybe cause I knew it wasn't working. I knew in my gut that, so maybe I, maybe I would have been able to click on some of those resources because actually it was one of the things that looking back, the least satisfying parts of my job was the nagging, the cheerleading, the, you know, a lot of doctors will try to scare families, you know, and, and I was also working with parents and don't, you know, I mean, it's terrible. What I, what I remember now of, of things I tried to say to motivate, to, you know, get people to comply. I mean, it's really, it's something I feel badly about, but so I don't know. And, and that's another point. You don't know if your pediatrician will honor the request, will get annoyed with you. You know, you may need to find another provider if that happens, if you feel like it's affected care, or maybe, maybe they'll say, I looked at, I looked that up and I'm intrigued and and look up some more resources and learn more. Luckily with social media, one of the few good things to come out of it is that there are now more and more spaces where doctors can learn some of this and unlearn some of their Mm. biased medical training. Do you have any suggestions on places like that for them? You don't have to, if you can't pull them off the top of your head. Um, You know, Anna's, Anna's page would be excellent, but you want to handle that, Anna? Wow. One that comes to mind, and I might have to send it to you. You can link it in the show notes is there's a HACE, H-A-E-S student doctor. So she's a medical student who writes about health at every size and and writes about the research. So that kind of pops into my mind. It's not necessarily pediatric focused, but definitely also Katya's page and the responsive feeding professionals page. So lots of feeding pro would be other places. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I feel like almost there's so many. I can't even. Yeah. um, So that's good. That's the other thing is that we have to start somewhere. Right. Right. And so if you were that person and I'm the parent who's handing this to the doctor and kind of cringing inside, even in my own work, as I'm helping my clients to choose to have a blind weight or choose to refuse a weight, like in our preparation for adults, I've done my own practice with that and have come up with different reactions. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. We just don't know, but we have to start somewhere, Mm -hmm. right? The earth was considered flat for a long time before we actually knew. So we have to help people understand that there's a different way of looking at it. And so one thing with the electronic medical record and my chart, I know that I can send emails to the care team. So that could be something too, to send in advance in that email um, oh, certainly. yeah. Oh, that's a good, yeah. and keep it brief, right? Of, of like, this is, we're coming in. I need you to know this. Yeah, I actually just did that. And again, I'm coming with a lot of privileges, especially as a dietitian in this space, but I took all three of my children to their pediatrician, their well child visits this summer. And they've, they've seen, you know, something similar to this letter that Katya and I wrote, but I just wrote a quick portal message, just a reminder. Mm-hmm. Don't go over growth charts during the visits, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, just a little kind of popping in to say this. And, mm-hmm. and um, I got a response back that said, got it. And then what they did is they printed off the growth charts and handed them to me and there wasn't a discussion. So, mm-hmm. uh, but to both of your points, I think every provider is going to react differently and you may not convince them, mm-hmm. but if at least if hopefully they'll grant your wish, right? Like respect what you're asking for your child of let's not talk about it. And we're not asking 
providers not to talk about their concerns. We say, if you have concerns, you can talk to me about it when my child's not there. I think also being prepared if they do bring up things. So some phrases that you could use. I mean, I remember my daughter was off the charts for the first four or five years. So, so there would be comments or, you know, any parent might go, well, or a provider might say, well, and you eat lots of vegetables, right? And, and so I'd, you know, I would sometimes just sort of jump in and say, yeah, she loves vegetables and she loves pie and she loves noodles and sort of, so there may be some, uh, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later about sort of outside influence and when comments are made in front of your kids. So let's say that, that they don't talk about weight, but they are pushing vegetables or talking about bodies or exercise in a way that doesn't feel right, that we can sort of add on and soften some of that with providers. And I Mm -hmm. remember doing that with my daughter just very well, sort of when they say, oh, you know, oh, you're little, you look at your tummy and I'd say, oh, she's so strong and she laughs and then her feet. So some of this stuff comes from medical assistance or, you know, um, uh, or the doctors. So uh, being prepared for the kind of rehearsing some of those things and how you might might soften that if your child hears that. So that reminded me of a, a medical professional who I was talking to who brought their two children in, one who would be considered, quote, normal on the growth chart, and the other one who would be considered higher. And so the kids went in together. And so the doctor was aware, right, prepped by this eating disorders specialist and went to talk about, didn't say anything about the person who would, who the child who was higher on the growth chart because I'm doing the right thing. And then on the one who was kind of more normal, I'm going to say this in quotes. I know you can't see this, but then went on to say, and you must be really active and you must be. So the other child in the room is cringing because it's what I'm not. It's what the doctor didn't say. I'm cringing Mm. too. Um, (laughs) And and I think it just highlights the fact that, that we all know this. The fact is we can't look at anyone and know what their behaviors are. And that's the thing that we, I think all of us are working so hard to try to undo is this belief in our medical system that certain behaviors look a certain way, Mm. you know, we just need to uncouple that. And it's, it's so tricky. I remember um, some years ago, doing some training with pediatrics residents and, and I got a lot of pushback and they would say, but this is, you know, this epidemic and, and we can't sugarcoat it. And this one, I remember this one young man sort of pounding the table. And if, if the parents aren't taking it seriously, I'm going to bring down the hammer and, and that they're getting lectures and, you know, every medical journal is full of these articles that are are often themselves really biased or incomplete or talking about correlations or missing the big picture. Like, you know, this, this, oh, this terrible announcement last week that weight gain has rate has accelerated during the pandemic for children, a couple of pounds and nowhere in there are they talking about the the massive increase in eating disorders and the lack of hospital access and that's the real crisis is not you know not a couple of pounds higher weight gain during a pandemic when families are barely hanging on and food insecurity spiked and all of that so but again um, you know we need to figure out ways to reach these these primary care providers because they're they think they're doing the right thing and and that's that's very tricky. 
It is tricky. And I, as you were talking about the medical journals, we have something called smart briefs for the dietitians that come across and it is horribly, horribly weight centric. And so what, what, and I mean, obesity epidemic, fear mongering, all of that. And I think we just, like, I wrote a message to them saying, come on, like, can you be fair and balanced here? Let's, can you open your eyes that there's other things, but that's to, to be honest too, there's a lot of research mm-hmm. backing that there's a lot of money behind the obesity scare. And I did that with quotes. I know you can't see them. So I would like to shift a little bit because I think the three of us are on the same page and there's so many professionals like us who are starting to help um, these parents and help medical providers understand, help dietitians to understand. And so how do we help families? Thanksgiving is coming up. Both of you work with kids and you work with families. Is there kind of a way that you help prepare people for holidays like this? The first thing that comes to mind is really talking to the parents. And if it's an older teenager who may have an eating disorder, they may be involved in this conversation of what, what routines can we keep the same? You know, Mm -hmm. so much is different around the holidays and there's so much focus, you know, with Thanksgiving on this one meal and that's great. And we're not trying to take that away, but you know, it's also another day that this child or adolescent needs to be nourished. And so we'll talk about, let's still get up and have breakfast. Let's still have lunch. Let's have our snacks. Maybe Thanksgiving meal is at lunch. You know, every family's different, but kind of what can stay the same on these days? What could feel grounding and supportive to this person with an eating disorder? So that I think routine is really important. Another thought I have is maybe a conversation about how the parent might handle comments from relatives, whether that's, whether that's comments about the child's weight being quote too high or too low or comment about the child eating quote too much or too little, right? Like any of those comments that are maybe very well-meaning, you know, that, or if a child's not eating what is served and the host feels upset about that and makes a comment, what, how is the parent as the support of the child going to handle that. And so we might do some role-playing or some brainstorming about the best way to kind of handle that. Those are the first two things that pop in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of that. And I think that the, the family dynamics can be so challenging. And I know for myself, I was raised in a a pretty fat phobic, you know, thin, thin equals moral equals, you know, everybody could do this if they ate right and exercised. And and then I had this big child. And so personally having to deal with comments about how much she ate and her body and having to establish boundaries for her was easier than doing it for myself. So sometimes so parents are motivated to do that. And, and so I used a phrase in my own home and then shared it with clients as well. And, and what, what I tried to do was ahead of time with family. And I know clients have done this too, is have a conversation and just say something like, in, you know, again, if, if this works for your family, it's just an option, but you know, we're, we're doing something a little different than how I was raised. And it's, and, and so we're letting her eat as much as she wants or as little as she wants. Now this is different from a, you know, if someone's in, in an active eating disorder. And so I'm just talking about a child who's not actively 
has a, has an eating disorder or, or ARFID, you know, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, this may apply there as well. So you might say mom, dad, or whoever, we're doing things a little differently than you did, or, uh, you know, and, and I'm not, it's not, I'm not trying to insult you. It's not anything about how you did it, but this is what's working for us, or we're working with a professional. Could you please, and then I use the words, follow my lead in this mm-hmm. pre conversation. Can you follow my lead and please not comment about her body or how much she is or isn't eating? And then during the mealtime, when it comes up, you have that shorthand where you can just sort of say, can, you know, can you follow my lead or Mm -hmm. Hey mom, follow my lead or, you know, sort of, it's almost a shorthand Um, or you can step in and that's not how we do things. You know, when the comment comes, well, you can't have pie until you've eaten your broccoli. Well, that's not how we do things. Sky Van Zetten is a, uh, an incredible parent of a child with a restrictive avoidant eating disorder. And she has a blog called mealtime hostage and a parent support group. That's I consider a safe resource that's weight neutral And she shared with me that she would just turn to the children when there was pressure from adults and say, are you, are you done eating? You know, if they were trying to get the kids to eat more in her case, are you done eating? You know, Hey, Sally, are you full? Is your tummy full? And then the kids would say yes. And that was a way to that for her that worked. So there are different ways to try Mm -hmm. to do it. And if you've got one of these kids, who's just, uh, you know, uh, really, you know, some of them could say this, which is, and I don't know where I read it. I read it somewhere recently on social media, I think on Virginia soul Smith's amazing burnt toast newsletter, but, and it said, you can teach the child to say, my body is none of your business, which oof, I would not, I don't, I still wouldn't have the guts to say something like that, but some, you know, some seven-year-old may say that. And, and it also could be harm reduction and deciding when it is and isn't worth saying something about and when you can unpack it with your child later. Recently, I, my daughter and I were volunteering at an event and one of the older gentlemen in his seventies or eighties made a comment about her body and my daughter's 16. And it was sort of on the way out the door and sort of said, Oh, you know, whatever the comment was. And I, we just sort of looked, my daughter and I looked at each other and then we talked about it afterwards, but I didn't necessarily feel like in that moment, the appropriate thing was to, you know, educate or, or make a big scene in that setting because we didn't know this person well, and he was older and, and my daughter is more established. And we've talked about, we've done this sort of prep work for years. So a lot of this will feel very situational and maybe I should have said something, but so, you know, it's hard to figure out in the moment and from scenario to scenario, but doing some of that prep work and, and base ground line, ground, base ground, I'm whatever. I can't think right now, <laughs> not enough for too much coffee. I don't know, but, but yeah, so, the, so there are lots of different ways to, to kind of deal with this. And again, what feels safe for some parents, if you depend on your parents for childcare, you may not be able to really insist on things being a certain way. So we, we do the best we can. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that makes me my think about sometimes I'll talk about that. We just have to follow the house rules at certain mm-hmm. houses. And this, I'm not necessarily talking about the comments, but you know, if, if my children, when they were younger would go to a house and their friend had to eat their carrots before they got dessert. And that was just so confusing to my child, you know, 
I would just say, you know, that's the house rules and you can decide not to eat the carrots. You know, you can have cookies when you come home, but you know, sometimes we have to do that. And kind of like Katya saying, is kind of decide where our energy is going to go to try to convince someone to do differently. Mm. And so I think so much of this is empowering parents to figure out what, what is helpful and what works. Yeah. And Reagan Chastain has some good blogs about this for, so if you're, again, if you're a parent or the parents you work with are in bigger bodies, uh, you know, she's a resource that I would go to. And I think she's doing some trainings now on topics just like this, standing up to your family when they're commenting. This is really, really hard stuff. I know personally, I took, I had to take a class on boundaries and I'm sort of reading books on that. So a lot of women, you know, people who are socialized, you know, to be nice and not not stand up or say, I don't like that, or that's wrong. And so that it it can take some practice and some forethought. And, and, and again, I think like Anna said, you know, you practice, you brainstorm in advance, you may be practicing some things in front of the mirror Mm -hmm. and it, 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 it can be uncomfortable. These are not easy. These are not easy discussions, especially when 95% of the media and all the stupid Dr. Oz magazines on the checkout and, you know, all the Noom commercials on NPR and every, everybody around them is reinforcing often the opposite of what, what this message is. So that, that can feel very lonely too. It's so refreshing to hear you as a medical provider to be talking about what that you're doing. I mean, Look, when we, I went to school a long time ago, but we were taught that we have to try to help the doctor understand our point of view and we can't be direct about it. And so for you to still be doing this work is an inspiration maybe to any other medical provider who's listening is that you're seen as the top of the rung and like you've got the power and for you to be doing this work and not just coming up and saying, this is how I'm going to do it. This is where we're going to, it's, it's a, it's a, you have to, you have to do the boundaries. You have to sort of play the game, and but you have to be able to get your point across, um, even as a medical provider. Well, I mean, I've actually been out of practice for a while. Okay. <laughs> so maybe I wouldn't have been able to have the time to reflect and do the work. But, um, and I have to say, even as a patient there, I'm when I'm the patient, there's a power dynamic. And again, even with all of my privilege, when I ask, ask not to be weighed, my heart pounds and I, in, and I'm, uh, you know, yeah. I, I think I'm a, I don't know. I don't know if I'm small fat or where I fall, but I'm big thin. I'm, I'm not sure, but I, you know, as an ally and uh, trying to, to just normalize that for the MAs to make it easier for the bigger person to say, I, I don't want to be weighed. I try to do that. And my heart races sometimes if it's a new provider and I don't, I don't know what the MA, are they going to roll their eyes? Are they, are we going to get in a fight? And, you know, so it's none of this stuff is easy and I've got all the, all the privilege there is. So. Yeah. I, I knew this was going to happen where I just, I'm going to want so much from both of you while we have our time and we are, we're running um, lower on time. And so I really like Dr. Ruel, how can people learn from you? You have a program. Yeah. So I just launched a new venture, a digital learning platform with a dietitian and a PhD researcher clinician. She's a counselor in the UK and it's called Responsive Feeding Pro. 
And we're just starting now and, and we're aiming it at pediatric feeding professionals. And that's pediatric dietitians, as well as SLPs and OTs who increasingly are seeing kids for avoidant eating. Unfortunately, I'm also seeing OTs getting into the world of weight, quote, management and obesity prevention, air quote, all of that. So that's where I'm doing a lot of my work. I'm also on Instagram, Katya Rowell MD, and sharing there on Instagram more of my work with focusing on foster and adoption. And, and my, my book will be updated for, for those folks next year. So can you tell people what SLP and OT Yes, of course. Thank you. Speech language pathologist and occupational therapist. And if you don't work with children, there's just been an absolute explosion in the last probably 15 years of unfortunately typical picky eaters being referred for feeding therapy and as well as kids with anxiety and avoidant and anxious eating. And I think a lot of kids are getting therapy that, that don't need it. There are kids who need help who aren't getting it as well. And so really trying to reach out to the the pediatric feeding world because Anna is probably seeing it as well. When these kids, quote, fail pediatric feeding therapies, they show up at age seven, eight, nine, 12 in the eating disorder world with these avoidant and restrictive eating challenges. So again, trying to, I think if we can help parents turn things around when children are two or three. And there's really great supportive research on on responsive feeding and and supporting parents with feeding challenges. You know, that's a huge difference to to kind of get back on a path towards a a better relationship with food and body. Mm, Thank you so much. To wrap things up, if you could go back and... If you, as you entered the world of disordered eating, eating disorders in your profession, what do you wish you would have known then that you know now? These are the nuggets that we're just trying to help newer clinicians or somebody who's just thinking about working in this field, like avoid some of the mistakes that we made. The thing that pops into my mind, and it's not a quick answer, but I'll try to be really concise, is the role that trauma plays in eating disorders. And so the the last five to 10 years, I've been doing trainings about trauma-informed care, more bottom-up approaches to eating disorder healing. And I think as dietitians, we're so trained to do top-down, meaning let's help our clients change their thoughts, which is super important. But there's this other piece that we're not trained about the nervous system and how trauma resides in the body. Mm-hmm. And I, as an eating disorder professional, wish I understood that a lot earlier. And that, that is just as important in the feeding therapy world and the, you know, how we're treating children with, with feeding issues also. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I have the same answer, which is funny. It's really wish that I had learned more about and, and little T trauma, big T trauma and, and feeding challenges are very traumatic and disruptive. If your baby isn't eating for any number of reasons or your toddler, that, that has real impacts on the uh, attachment and the relationships. And, and it's, it's very, very tricky. So I wish I'd known again, more about that body piece, that nervous system, that regulation, you know, that felt safety versus, you know, being, being in that body stress response and co-regulation and, and absolutely agree. And, and not, and, and, and that comes off sounding is really touchy feely, but there is absolutely a medical 
it's a health prevention, a, a health intervention. If a body is chronically dysregulated, the cardiovascular system, the digestive system, the immune system, growth hormones, you know, energy storage, all of it is out of whack and not working well. And over time, that's the piece where we see higher rates of, you know, the wear and tear on the body. So we have all of this, you know, wear and tear from childhood where we see then, you know, adverse childhood events and plus the systemic racism and poverty and all of these other issues. To me, that's a much bigger driver of the chronic health problems and mental health that we're seeing in adulthood that right now are getting blamed on obesity, air quotes. Yeah. And how many of our clients with eating disorders have GI complications. It just plays out there in the body. Mm-hmm. And to kind of link this little part of our conversation back to our letter, you know, being a child at a medical visit and hearing from the doctor who's kind of in charge, right? That there's something wrong with your body and using scary words that can be traumatic. Mm -hmm. And so that's where this kind of links back to that is that we want to hopefully prevent some of that trauma. That's a result of this focus on weight that we've been experiencing for the last 15, 20 years. Absolutely. And just to add my piece of wish I, what I wish I would have known is and connecting the whole trauma and nervous system is the diet, the trauma of the diet or the trauma of you may have grown up in a very privileged world uh, where there was plenty of food available, but the mentality is we need to be thin, we need to be fit, we need to be. And so you could have plenty around, but you've you're not allowed to have it. So the the trauma of the diet. Absolutely. Such a good point. Well, thank you both so much. We're going to put, I, I have so many nuggets to put into the show notes and um, really want you to take a look at those, the Sunnyside Nutrition blogs and the training for responsivefeedingpro.com. Those are some real highlights from today and how to prepare your family, your child for conversations in the doctor's office and along with the preparing them for holidays and being around each other and especially in food and, and different comments. So thank you both Anna and Dr. Rowell for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.